Good morning. The reading today is taken from Romans 9, verses 14 to 29. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display in you, display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although showing his wrath and made his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people, who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one, who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, Unless the Lord Almighty has left us descendants, we would become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to him. Thank you, Lois. Good morning, everyone. My name's Sam. I'm the pastor of our Uni Church congregation. It's a joy to explore God's word with you this morning. Well, it's been, it's been great this week since we began our series in Romans 9 to 11 last Sunday to hear many questions from people about the biblical doctrine of election, uh, what it is, what it means, what its implications are for us. Last Sunday, Alex opened up for us Romans 9 in which Paul demonstrates that God has chosen, elected some from the nation of Israel and some from among the Gentiles to be his people to be saved. Importantly, we saw last week, it doesn't mean that God's word to Israel had failed, but rather scripture testified that it was always God's plan to choose those who would be saved 
and that God's choice wouldn't just be based on ethnic identity. And so we began to wrestle ourselves then with what this doctrine of God's choosing, this doctrine of election means for us. Does God choose sinners to be saved and then provide for their salvation? Or does God provide a way of salvation that sinners choose for themselves? Well, today we're working through the next part of Romans 9 as we explore these questions and we'll focus in on two main truths that Paul holds up for us. First, from verses 14 to 18, that salvation is by God's mercy. And then second, from verses 19 to 29, that salvation is for God's glory. So salvation is by God's mercy and for God's glory. Well, according to Paul here in Romans 9, God chooses sinners to be saved and then he provides for their salvation. And he makes his choice independently of any way that we might deserve or not deserve to be chosen. And this causes us to ask all kinds of questions, doesn't it? Perhaps there are questions in your mind since last week and as we look at God's word this morning. Perhaps your question is a bit like the question that Paul anticipates in verse 14. Is God unjust? Is that fair? Surely it's not fair for God to choose some and not choose others. That's the question that Paul anticipates as he begins here from verse 14. So have a look at that verse with me. What shall we say then? Is God unjust? Not at all. For, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So here's what, here's what strikes me immediately about Paul's response. In a question about God's justice, Paul doesn't hold up God's justice. He holds up God's mercy. Why? Why would he do that? It's certainly not for lack of material. The Old Testament consistently and significantly holds up God's justice. The Lord is a God of justice, Isaiah 30. I, the Lord, love justice, Isaiah 61. He loves righteousness and justice, Psalm 33, along with many, many other references. So why then? Why does God respond to this question of, why does Paul respond to this question of God's justice by holding up God's mercy? Because God's salvation of the elect is not an act of justice, but an act of mercy. God's salvation of the elect is not an act of justice, but of mercy. God's mercy is his his costly and faithful love, generated from his own person, not from any merit of those to whom he shows mercy. Mercy is undeserved love and favour. In in fact, even more, mercy is love that's not just undeserved but ill-deserved. When God's people deserve punishment or rejection, 
He instead shows mercy as he continues to love them. And mercy is a central characteristic of God's character. It's revealed in scripture. It's a central element of his hesed, his his covenant love to his people. And mercy is a rare jewel. Isn't that we live in a world with little mercy? I was thinking about it this week. I think maybe one way that we see this is in cancel culture around us, right? We like to make fun of cancel culture, but I think it's, it's a culture without mercy. When, when a celebrity offends or, or discriminates or acts in a socially unacceptable way, they're met with swift condemnation, ostracism, exclusion. It's a form of justice, but without mercy. I think the, the rarity, the beauty of mercy is perhaps why scripture calls believers to show love to prisoners. Have you ever wondered why that group of people is singled out so often to receive our care? Perhaps because they're the ones who least deserve it. Mercy is undeserved love and favour. And God is utterly free to show mercy to whom he will. Mercy cannot be demanded. Mercy that is obligated is not mercy at all. We can never merit mercy from our creator. Picture, picture justice as balanced impartiality, right? like a balanced set of scales. With justice, the righteous are rewarded and the unrighteous are punished. It's fair. Injustice on one side then is partiality against someone. The scales weighted against us. Mercy, on the other hand, is precisely the opposite. The scales balanced in our favour. It's not justice, it's beyond justice. Perhaps you've heard the famous story of Bishop Muriel in the musical Les Miserables. He, he takes in Jean Valjean, a criminal on the run, gives him a warm place to sleep, food and shelter from his pursuers. And yet Valjean, hardened and desperate in his situation, he creeps from the bishop's home with armfuls of stolen silver. And when the police drag Valjean back to the bishop's home the next day, Muriel cries, so here you are, I'm delighted to see you. Had you forgotten that I gave you the candlesticks as well? They're silver like the rest, worth 200 francs. Did you forget to take them? It's that singular act of mercy that transforms the rest of Valjean's life. And it's in an act of God's mercy that we are saved. Footnote. God does not neglect justice in our salvation. Right? He doesn't tip the scales in our favour and leave justice unfulfilled. That wouldn't be consistent with a God of justice. But rather, how is justice done? Our sin, our, our rejection of God is dealt with by Christ on the cross. All the weight of our sin, which would tip the scales towards condemnation, he takes off the scales and places on his own back so that both justice and mercy triumph to achieve our salvation. See, our, our salvation could only ever come from mercy. 
And this is where the question, is God unjust, in verse 14, where that question goes so wrong. We would only look for justice from God if we thought that justice would work out in our favour, right? Yet that is not our position. The convicted criminal doesn't hope for justice, does he? The family of the victim might call for justice, but the criminal hopes for mercy. Let's not forget that we're still talking about Israel here. This is part of a section of Romans in which Paul has his people, Israel, firmly in view. Israel was in no position to call out for God's justice, for justice would surely mean condemnation for that obstinate, unfaithful, sinful people. Paul quotes there from Exodus 33. It's from the immediate aftermath of Israel's kind of seminal, archetypal betrayal of God in their adultery with the golden calf. And it's in the aftermath of that incident that God makes this statement to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. He says that to a people in active rebellion against him. See, God doesn't look at a group of of loyal and devoted followers and declare, some of you I'll keep around, but some of you I will reject. No, that, that, would be, that would be vindictive and, and arbitrary. Rather, God looks at Israel, a nation set against the very God who has bound himself to them in covenant love, who has rescued them from slavery, and he declares that even from among this rebellious group of people, he will show mercy and he will draw out a remnant. And Israel's story is, of course, our story. That's the story of all people, isn't it? Human beings do not stand before God deserving of his love. Our default position before God is, is enmity against him, opposition to God, and yet God still chooses to show mercy and compassion. Before our salvation, each of us was a prodigal son in a far-off land, distant from God by our own choice, and our own making. What did Paul write in Romans 5 verse 8? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus himself said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. None of us are able in our own strength to choose God. If this sounds like bad news to you, don't fear. The gospel is good news. This is not a message of of self-condemnation. It's a message of hope. The gospel doesn't press us down. It it lifts us up. And this gospel lifts us up. It gives us hope which is more dependable, more reliable, more weight-bearing than any other hope. Because salvation depends on God's mercy and not on God's justice, we are released from the impossible burden of putting ourselves on the right side of justice. 
It's merciful for God to save anyone at all. We need to reposition how we see ourselves before God without Christ. Not, not as neutral or as deserving of salvation, but as those who have rejected God and made ourselves his enemies. And it's only from this position that we can fling ourselves on God's mercy, not on his justice by which we would surely be condemned, but on his undeserved and unearned mercy. Which is safer, to attempt to swim across a wide and dangerous river yourself or be taken across in a boat? The doctrine of election is, is freedom, it's comfort, it's assurance. It's difficult and it's counterintuitive and it jags against how we're deeply conditioned to think about ourselves, but it is good news. I have a two-year-old who loves adventure and she's a runner. Maybe you've seen her running down the street outside church after a service one Sunday morning. As soon as the front gate is open, she guns it. She's like a rugby player, busting tackles, ducking under legs, going for it. And our house is on a busy street. And sometimes Bella goes for the road. And so we talk before we go out the gate. Bella, it's important that you don't run to the road because it's dangerous. Bella, listen to me and stay on this side of the car. Bella, be safe. And yet, with cars flying past on the street, Bella chooses to exercise her free will. She disobeys her father and she runs. What can I do? I can command her. I can plead with her. I can preach to her, come back to me. Don't run away. But she runs and so I pursue her and against her will, out of my love for her, I grab her by the back of the jumper and pull her away from the street. If you're, if you're a Christian, the right response to God's election of you is deep thankfulness. He called you, he pursued you He grabbed you as you ran towards death and he pulled you back to himself like a loving father with a disobedient child. Now God certainly calls us to respond to his gospel. We are not made into passive objects along a production line of salvation that God's operating And yet, as we acknowledged last week, it's a wonderful mystery of the gospel that God sovereignly chooses us and he enables us to choose him. Billy Graham used to say that at the entrance to the gates of heaven is a sign saying, come, whosoever will believe. But then as you walk through the gates on the inside is a sign saying, chosen before the foundation of the world. It's a picture that doesn't explain everything, but it's one that happily holds the mystery of our election. The doctrine of election is God's mercy. It's good news. Spurgeon said it in his own entertaining way. I believe the doctrine of election because I am quite certain that if God had not chosen me, 
I should never have chosen him. And I am sure he chose me before I was born or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me for I could never find in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. So I am forced to accept that great biblical doctrine. Have a look at verse 17. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. In his power and his wisdom, God does not show mercy to every person. In fact, Paul declares here, God hardens whom he wants to harden, as he did Pharaoh in the Exodus. And so we wrestle again, don't we? How could a good God harden someone's heart with their destruction as the outcome of that hardening? Well, we could say, along with commentators, theologians, preachers, throughout the centuries, that in hardening Pharaoh's heart, God is is not taking an innocent man and turning him into a villain. Pharaoh, even before his conflict with the Lord, is a genocidal tyrant. His first action in the biblical story is to order the mass killing of infants. Leon Morris wrote, Neither here nor anywhere else is God said to harden anyone who had not first hardened themselves. We could say that, yet that's not Paul's response, as logical as it might seem. Does he respond by arguing, ah, but remember, God only hardened Pharaoh's heart after Pharaoh hardened his own heart? No, that's not what Paul says. Instead, he questions the critic's right to even lodge the objection. Verse 20. Who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? He he doubles down on God's sovereign right as the potter to make vessels for whatever use he sees fit. He's picking up this strong tradition in Scripture of picturing God as the potter and his people as his workmanship. And just like in Isaiah 29 and 45 and Jeremiah 18, Paul here points out the folly of the clay accusing the potter. This image isn't teaching that God fashions vessels arbitrarily. It's not that humans are unthinking or unimportant like clay. That's not what this metaphor is communicating. Rather, it's the simple fact that God's choice isn't based on anything in the vessels themselves. Moses and Pharaoh were from the same lump. Jacob and Esau were from the same father. Paul is determined that God will not be put in the dock. Paul doesn't respond to this question by presenting an apologetic for the moral acceptability of God's behaviour. Instead, right, he just points to God's revealed activity and will in the Old Testament scripture and he says, look, God's doing exactly what he's always done and exactly what he said he would do. And there's a challenge for us there, isn't there? 
this, this doctrine of election makes a wonderful test for how we see ourselves before God. We so easily and unthinkingly can slip into this dominant self-understanding of our age, right, which assumes human autonomy and wisdom and places each of us individually in a judgment seat to decide if God even exists or if he is just. If we presume to assess God against our own expectations, if we demand that he conform to the way we would have him behave, we have good reason to examine our own hearts. God is the judge of us, not us of him. God is consistent, he is kind, but he does not answer to you. God gives us a conscience, he gives us an intellect and he invites us to use them. The gospel, the Christian message is not anti-intellectual by any means. God shows patience, he invites us to ask questions of him. But we must do so in humility and wonder, not with suspicion and pride. Not, not grovelling, not unthinking, but with humility. Well, Paul continues from verse 22. Have a look. What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the object of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? What if God chooses to justly punish some for their rejection of him? Even for those, God bears with them great patience, holding out his hand to them through all the days of their life, even though he knows they won't take it. And what if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the ones he has chosen to show mercy? That the sorrow, the darkness of a life and a destiny without God makes the elect all the more thankful for his mercy to them. Here's what it comes down to. Everything is for God's glory. Everything. Your salvation, though it provides you with benefits beyond imagining, is primarily, ultimately, for the glory of God. And if God's saving purposes are for his glory, then what alternative could there be to his sovereign choosing of us? Our salvation can't depend on us, otherwise at least some of the glory goes to us. Salvation can't depend on those who share the gospel with others, otherwise the glory goes to them. It's only by God's hand that salvation can be achieved so that all the glory goes to him. And Paul points out this very truth as he rains down these quotations from verses 25 to 29 from Hosea and from Isaiah. It's God who makes us his people. 
He makes us his children. He brings out a remnant. And unless he did that for us, verse 29, we would have become like Sodom and Gomorrah, utterly turned against God and eventually justly destroyed. So, at the end of the day, right, even, even if we can see scriptural warrant for the doctrine of election, it can nonetheless feel difficult to accept. A bit like Paul's imaginary questioner, right? Our minds, they keep firing. Yeah, but what about X? How is Y fair? What about the implications for Z? But I think deeper than that, it's, it's our hearts that wrestle with this doctrine of election. What does this mean for my child who has walked away from Jesus? How can I know if I am elect or if despite all my best efforts I'm destined to hell? If God decides everything anyway, then what's the point in praying or evangelising? Friends, those are, those are heavy questions. I, f- I feel the weight of them. There's, there's someone in, in my life who I care about very much who was utterly persuaded and changed by the Gospel but has walked away. Are they elect? Or was it just somehow never real? I don't know. I don't know. But, but I do know that the, gospel, the doctrine of election gives me hope. I could look at that person and despair that maybe they never belong to Jesus after all. Or I can look at that person and I can preach to my heart that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation can separate them from the love of Jesus. I can preach to myself Jesus' words that all those the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. It is not our grip on him that secures us, but his grip on us. No one will snatch us out of his hand. Election is a doctrine of hope. Hope that's found in someone stronger than me. And so I don't give up on them. And I don't throw up my hands because it's just up to God anyway. This is from Acts. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you and no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. It's because of God's sovereign election of people in that city that he sends Paul to preach to them. God chooses to save and he chooses to do it through us. Election does not make us passive. It strengthens us to action. 
Friends, in God's sovereign election, we have hope and a comfort and a perspective which makes the gospel shine all the brighter. It's because of this doctrine that we can cry out with Paul from the end of Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Sam. Uh, so often we respond to hearing God's word by singing together. Uh, today, however, 